Chapter 94 of Consuelo by George Sand This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Consuelo mentioned nothing to Popora of Maria Teresa's motives for thus disgracing or at least slighting her, except what it was necessary for him to know. Anything else would have only served to annoy and vex the maestro, and perhaps irritate him against Haydn to no purpose. Consuelo said nothing either to her young friend of what she had been silent upon to Popora. She justly despised the false accusations which she knew had been concocted and furnished to the empress by two or three unfriendly individuals, and as yet, at least, had obtained no circulation with the public. The ambassador coroner, to whom she thought it right to confide everything, confirmed her in this opinion, and to prevent ill-natured persons from laying hold of these calumnies and turning them to her disadvantage, he arranged matters wisely and generously. He settled that Porpora should remain in his lodging with Consuelo, and that Haydn should become an attaché to the embassy, and be admitted to the table of the private secretaries. In this way the old maestro would escape some of the cares of poverty, and Joseph could still pay him a few personal attentions, which would give him an opportunity of coming frequently to the house and taking his lessons, while Consuelo would be protected against malignant imputations. In spite of these precautions, Carilla was engaged in place of Consuelo at the Imperial Theatre. Consuelo had been unable to give satisfaction to Maria Teresa, this great queen, while she amused herself with the intrigues behind the scenes, which Kaunitz and Metastasio only told her of by halves and always in a piquant and amusing fashion, wished to perform nothing less than the part of a special providence toward creatures who, on their part, acted to the life repentant sinners or converted demons. It may well be supposed that among these hypocrites who received pensions and gratuities for their assumed piety, Neither Cafariello, nor Farinelli, nor Tesi, nor Madame Hasse, nor any of those great and celebrated virtuosi who occasionally came to display their talents at Vienna were included. But the common herd were bribed by persons determined on flattering Her Majesty's devout and moralizing fantasies, and Her Majesty, who introduced her spirit of diplomatic intrigue into everything, made the marriages and conversions of her actors an affair of state. One may read in the memoirs of Favard that entertaining romance of realities, the difficulties he experienced in sending proper actresses and singers, whom he had gotten commission to furnish, to Vienna. Thus Maria Teresa wished to give to her amusement an edifying pretext worthy of her beneficent character. Monarchs are always acting a part, and great monarchs probably more so than others. Popora constantly said so, and he was not mistaken. The great empress, a zealous Catholic and mother of an exemplary family, conversed without repugnance with women of easy virtue, catechized them, and solicited strange confessions in order to have the honor and glory of leading a repentant Magdalene to the foot of the cross. The empress's private purse, placed between vice and contrition, rendered these miracles of grace at once numerous and infallible. Thus Carilla, weeping and prostrate if not in person, 
for her stubborn nature would have hardly bent to the humiliating act, at least through Kaunitz as her proxy, who went security for her conduct, must inevitably take precedence of a decided, proud, and fiery temperament like that of Consuelo. Maria Teresa loved in her protégés of the drama only those virtues of which she could boast herself the author. Those which had been self-created or self-maintained did not interest her very much. She did not believe in them as her own virtue should have made her believe. Then Consuelo's proud attitude had provoked her. She found her logical and self-possessed. It was rather too much for a little bohemian to wish to be wise than estimable without an empress interfering to bring it about, and when Herr Kaunitz, who pretended to be very impartial, while all the time he did his utmost to assist one and injure the other, asked Her Majesty if she had granted the little one's prayer, she replied, I was not satisfied with her principles. Do not mention her name to me again. And all was said. The voice, the features, and even the name of Porporina were thenceforth completely forgotten. It was necessary to explain briefly to Popora the meaning of this exclusion. Consuelo told him that her being unmarried seemed to the Empress an unsurmountable objection to her engagement. "'And Korea?' exclaimed Porpora, on learning the admission of her rival. "'Has Her Majesty married her?' So far as I've been able to learn from Her Majesty's words, Korea passes with her for a widow. A widow? said Porpora with a bitter smile. But what will they say when they know what she is and when they see her conduct? And this child they tell me about, that she has left near Vienna with some cannon? She will turn the whole affair into ridicule with her companions, and she will laugh in private at the clever trick she has played the Empress. But what if the Empress learns the truth? She will never learn it. Sovereigns are surrounded with ears which serve as barriers to exclude it. Many things apparently are never told, and nothing finds admission into the imperial sanctuary but what these guardians choose to give admission to. Besides, replied Popora, Korea will always have confession as a last resource, and Herr Kaunitz can enjoin a proper penance. The poor maestro endeavored to vent his spleen in these bitter sarcasms, but he was not the less deeply vexed. He lost all hope of seeing his opera performed, the more so as the libretto was not by Metastasio, the court poet. He had some suspicion that Consuelo had not taken the proper means to secure the good graces of the sovereign, and he could not help evincing his ill-humour to her. To make matters worse, the Venetian ambassador, one day when he saw Porpora overjoyed at Haydn's rapid musical progress, was imprudent enough to tell him the whole truth, and to show him some of the young man's graceful compositions, which had begun to circulate and be admired among amateurs. The maestro exclaimed that he was imposed on, and became frightfully enraged. Happily he did not suspect Consuelo as an accomplice in the deceit, and Corner hastened to assuage the storm by a good-natured palliation. But he could not hinder Joseph from being banished for several days from Porpora's presence, and it required all the ambassador's influence to prevail upon the maestro to receive him again. Porpora, however, bore him a grudge for a long time, and it was even said 
that he made him purchase his lessons by painful and unnecessary humiliations, since the servants of the embassy were always at its disposal. But Haydn was not to be repulsed, and by dint of sweetness of temper, patience, and docility, aided by the advice and assistance of the good Consuelo, ever studious and attentive, he disarmed the rough professor and obtained all that it was in the power of the one to impart or the other to receive. But Haydn's genius dreamed of a different path from that which he had hitherto pursued, and the future father of the symphony confided to Consuelo his ideas respecting instrumentation on a gigantic scale. These gigantic proportions, which appear so simple and obvious to us at the present day, might well seem to our ancestors a hundred years ago rather the utopian dream of a madman than a revelation of genius. Joseph distrusted himself, and confessed to Consuelo the ambition which tormented him. Consuelo was at first a little terrified also. Hitherto the orchestral accompaniment had been merely a secondary consideration, and when it was suffered from the human voice, its resources were bald and simple in the extreme. Nevertheless, her young fellow-pupil evinced so much calmness and perseverance, and displayed in all his conduct and opinions so much real modesty and conscientious regard for truth, that Consuelo, unable to esteem him presumptuous, decided on considering him wise and encouraged him in his projects. It was at this period that Haydn composed a serenade for three instruments, which, accompanied by two of his friends, he proceeded to perform under the windows of those dilettanti whose attention he wished to draw to his works. He began with Porpora, who, without knowing the names of the performers, listened with pleasure from his window and applauded without reserve. The ambassador, who was also a listener, took care this time not to betray the secret. For Popora would not have suffered the young composer to turn his attention from vocal music to any other pursuit. About this time Popora received a letter from his pupil, the excellent contralto singer, Hubert surnamed Porporino, who had entered into the service of Frederick the Great. This famous artist was not, like the other pupils of the professor, so infatuated with his own merits as to forget to whom he owed them. Porporino had been imbued by him with a species of talent which he never sought to modify, and which had always been successful, viz., to sing in a chaste and severe style, without unnecessary ornaments, and without departing from the sound doctrines of his master. He was particularly admirable in the adagio. On this account, Porpora entertained a preference for him, which he had some difficulty in concealing in presence of the fanatical admirers of Farinelli and Cavariello. He readily conceded that the ability, brilliancy, and pliability of voice of these great performers were more captivating and better calculated to charm an audience greedy of difficulties. But he repeated mentally that Porporino would never make such sacrifice to bad taste, and that his audience would never tire of hearing him, although he always sung in the same manner. It appeared, in fact, that Prussia did not tire of him, for he shone there during his whole musical career, and died at a very advanced age, after a lengthened sojourn of more than forty years. Hubert's letter informed Porpora that the latter's music was much liked at Berlin, and that if he would join him there he would do his utmost 
to have his new compositions performed. He urged him to leave Vienna, where artists were continually at the mercy of intrigues, and to recruit for the Prussian court a distinguished cantatrice who could sing with him the operas of the maestro. He highly eulogized the enlightened taste of the king and his honorable conduct toward musicians. If this project meets with your approbation, said he at the close of the letter, reply quickly and state your terms, and three months hence I promise to procure such as will secure you in your old days a comfortable support. As to glory, my dear master, it is sufficient for that purpose that you write and that we sing so as to do you justice, and I trust your fame will extend even to Dresden. This last expression made Porpora prick his ears like a veteran war-horse. It was an allusion to the triumphs which Hassa and his singers had obtained at the court of Saxony. The idea of counterbalancing the fame of his rival in the north of Germany so tickled the maestro, and he felt at this moment so much dislike for Vienna and the Viennese and their court that he replied without hesitation to Porporino, authorizing him to make proposals for him at Berlin. He mentioned what he would expect, making a moderate demand in order to avoid disappointment. He spoke of Porporina in the highest terms, telling him that she was his sister in education, genius, and affection, as well as in name, and desiring him to arrange for her engagement on the most advantageous terms possible. In this he acted without so much as consulting Consuelo, who was only informed of this fresh resolve after the letter had been dispatched. Poor Consuelo was terrified at the very name of Prussia, and that of the great Frederick made her shudder. Since the adventure with the deserter, she no longer looked upon this so much vaunted monarch as anything but an ogre or a vampire. Porpora scolded her a good deal for testifying so little joy at this new engagement, and as she could not relate to him the history of Karl and the promises of Meyer, she drooped her head and submitted quietly to his tutoring. On reflection, however, she found some comfort in the project. It served to delay her return to the stage, since the affair might not go on, and since Porporino, under any circumstances, required three months to conclude it. Until then she was at liberty to dream of Albert's love, and endeavor within herself to respond to it. Whether she finally admitted the possibility of a union or the contrary, she could still at least honorably keep her promise to think of it without force or constraint. She determined to wait for Count Christian's reply to her first letter before announcing this intelligence to the family at Reisenberg. But this reply did not arrive, and Consuelo was beginning to think that Count Christian had renounced the idea of this mesalliance, and was endeavoring to make Albert renounce it also, when she received from Keller a communication to the following purport. You promised to write to me. You have done so indirectly in acquainting my father with your present embarrassing position. I see that you are placed under a yoke from which I should think it criminal to withdraw you. My father is terrified at the consequences which your submission to Popora may have upon me. But as for myself, Consuelo, I am not yet alarmed at anything which has taken place, because you express regret and repugnance at what is imposed on you, a sufficient proof that you will not lightly decide upon the question of my eternal unhappiness. No, you will not break your promise. You will try to love me? 
What matters it to me where you are, or what you do, or the rank which glory or prejudice may give you among men, or the lapse of time, or the obstacles which prevent us meeting, if I can hope, and if you tell me to hope, I doubtless suffer much, but I can suffer still more without sinking, so long as one solitary gleam of hope remains unextinguished. I wait, I can wait. Do not think to alarm me by taking time to reply. Do not write under the influence of fear or pity, to which I would not wish to owe anything. Weigh my destiny in your heart, my soul in yours, and when the time has come, when you feel sure of your decision, whether you be in the cell of a nun or on the boards of a theatre, tell me never to trouble you more, or to come and rejoin you. I shall either be at your feet or forever dumb, as you may decide." "'Oh, noble Albert!' exclaimed Consuelo, pressing the letter to her lips. "'I feel that I love you. It would be impossible not to love you, and I will not hesitate to tell you so. I long to reward you by my promise for your love and constancy.' She immediately began to write, but Porpora's voice made her quickly conceal Albert's letter as well as her reply. Throughout the day she had not a moment's leisure or security. It seemed as if the cynical old man had divined her desire to be alone, and had resolved to prevent it. When night came, Consuelo was more tranquil, and could reflect that so important a determination required a longer trial of her own feelings. It would be wrong to subject Albert to the hazard of any change in her feelings toward him. She read and re-read a hundred times the young Count's letter, and perceived that he feared equally the pain of a refusal and the danger of a hasty promise. She determined to take some days to consider her reply, a step which Albert himself seemed to desire. The life which Consuelo now led at the embassy was quiet and regular in the extreme. To give no grounds for scandal, Corner was considerate enough not to visit Consuelo in her own suite of apartments, and never invite her, even in company with Porpora, to his. He only saw her in the presence of Wilhelmina, where they could converse together with perfect propriety and enjoy a little music. Joseph also was admitted to these musical parties, where Caffariello came often, Count Hoditz sometimes, and the Abbe Metastasio rarely. All three regretted Consuelo's failure, but not one of them had the courage or perseverance to make any attempt in her favor. Porpora was indignant, and had much difficulty in concealing it. Consuelo endeavored to calm him, and persuade him to take men as he found them, with all their faults and weaknesses. She induced him to exert himself, and, thanks to her, he was occasionally visited by gleams of hope and enthusiasm. She encouraged him, only in his dislike, to bring her before the public. Happy at being forgotten by those great people whom she had looked upon with terror and repugnance, she addicted herself to serious study and delightful reveries, cultivated the friendship of the good Haydn, and each day said to herself, while she lavished every care and attention on her old master, that if nature had not intended her for a life free from emotion and bustle, still less had it intended her for the pursuits of vanity and ambition. She had dreamed, and still dreamed in spite of herself, of a more animated existence, of deeper and more heartfelt joys, of the pleasures of a boundless and ever-expanding intellect. 
but the world of art which she had imagined so noble and so pure had shown itself on a nearer view under so ugly and forbidding an aspect that she chose in preference a life of obscurity and retirement gentle affections and a solitude sweetened by labour consuelo had no further reflections to make relative to the offer of the rudolstadts she could not entertain a doubt of their generosity of the unalterable love of the son and the indulgent tenderness of the father it was no longer her reason and her conscience that she felt it necessary to interrogate both spoke for albert she had triumphed on this occasion without any effort to banish the remembrance of anzoletto a victory over love gives strength for every subsequent struggle she no longer feared his attractions and she felt herself beyond the risk of fascination and yet with all this love did not plead with passion in her heart for albert she had still to question that heart whose mysterious calmness ever welcomed the idea of a full and perfect love seated at her window the gentle girl often gazed at the passers-by rough students noble lords melancholy artists proud cavaliers all were in turns the object of a serious and innocent inquiry alas said she is my heart frivolous or capricious am i capable of loving deeply loving at first sight as my companions of the scuola have so often confessed and even boasted to each other before me is love a magic flame which overwhelms our whole being and turns us irresistibly from our sacred and peaceful affections is there among those who sometimes raise their eyes to my window one whose look troubles and fascinates me is this one with his lordly walk and noble figure more beautiful than albert or is that one with his curling and perfumed locks and elegant attire calculated to displace the image of my betrothed or would i be the decked-out lady whom i see rolling past in yonder carriage with her haughty and handsome cavalier who holds her fan and presents her gloves is there out in all that which makes me tremble or blush or which causes my heart to palpitate no no in truth speak my heart for now i will question you and submit to your decrees alas i hardly know you for since my birth we have been almost strangers i have never contradicted you i gave up the empire of my life without examining or bridling your impulses you have been crushed poor heart and now that conscience rules you you can no longer live know no longer what to say speak then rouse yourself and choose well you are tranquil and would have nothing that you see there no you would not have ansoletto again no then it is albert whom you call it seems to me that you whispered yes and consuelo retired each day from her window with a joyous smile on her lips and a gentler radiance in her eyes at the end of a month she replied to albert calmly with perfect self-possession and her pulse beating as gently as an infant's i love none but you and i am almost certain that i love you in the meantime leave me to dream of the possibility of our union let it be ever present to your thoughts and let us together find some expedient to avoid vexing either your father or my master lest we become selfish in becoming happy 
She added to this note a short letter to Count Christian, in which she described the quiet life she led, and announced the respite which the new projects of Porpora had granted to her. She begged that they would endeavor to find some means of disarming Porpora's resentment, and of breaking the intelligence to him in the course of the month. A month still remained to prepare the maestro for the announcement before the Berlin affair should be settled. Consuelo, having sealed these two letters, placed them on the table and fell asleep. A delicious calm had descended upon her soul, and she had not for a long time enjoyed such deep and undisturbed repose. She awoke late, and rose hastily in order to see Keller, who had promised to return for her letter at eight. It was now nine, and while hastening to dress, Consuelo saw with terror that the letter was no longer where she had placed it. She sought it everywhere but in vain. She left the room to see if Keller might not be waiting in the antechamber, but neither Keller nor Joseph was to be found, and as she re-entered her apartment to search a second time for her letter, she saw Porpora there, who seemed to await her approach, and who fixed upon her a stern and threatening look. "'What do you seek?' said he. "'I have mislaid a sheet of music.' "'You do not speak the truth. It is a letter that you seek. "'Master, be silent, Consuelo. "'You are yet but a novice in deceit. "'Do not now commence to study it.' "'Master, what have you done with the letter?' "'I gave it to Keller. "'And wherefore did you give it to him?' "'Because he came for it, as you told him yesterday. "'You know not how to feign, or rather I have quicker ears than you think.' But in one word, said Consuelo firmly, what have you done with my letter? I have told you. Why do you ask again? I did not think it right that a well-conducted girl such as you are, and always will be, should give letters in confidence to her hairdresser. To prevent people having an ill opinion of you, I myself gave the letter quietly to Keller, and commissioned him from you to dispatch it. He will not think at least that you hide a secret from your father." Master, you have done well. Pardon me. I pardon you. Let us say no more. And you have read my letter? said Consuelo, with a timid and deprecating tone. For whom do you take me? replied Poporo, with a terrible look. Pardon me for what I have done, said Consuelo, bending her knee before him and endeavoring to take his hand. Let me open my heart to you, and not another word, replied the maestro, repulsing her. And he entered his own room, and shut the door violently behind him. Consuelo hoped that this outburst, once over, she might be able to appease his anger, and at the same time explain matters to him. She felt assured that she would have courage to open her whole mind to him, and hoped by doing so to hasten the issue of her wishes. But he refused all explanation, and evinced the utmost displeasure whenever the subject was mentioned. In other respects he was as friendly toward her as ever, and even appeared more contented and cheerful than he had been for a long time. Consuelo looked upon this as a good augury, and calmly waited a reply from Reisenberg. In one respect Porpora had not told an untruth, for he had burned Consuelo's letters without reading them but he had kept the envelope and substituted in place of the original letter one from himself to Count Christian. He hoped by this bold step at once to save his pupil and spare Count Christian a sacrifice beyond his strength. 
He believed that in so doing he was acting toward him as a faithful friend, and toward Consuelo as a wise and energetic father. He did not foresee that he might thus inflict a fatal blow upon Count Albert. Hardly knowing the young nobleman, he believed that Consuelo had been guilty of exaggeration with regard to him, and that he was neither so ill nor so attached to her as she had imagined. Moreover, he held, like all old men, that love sooner or later comes to an end, and that disappointed affection kills nobody. End of chapter 94